Hello, and welcome to Feature in a Short. My name is Justin Joseph Hall, director and editor at Four Wind Films. As many of you avid listeners know, at the end of each season of Feature in a Short, during the award season, we have our most prestigious Fresh Air Award. We gather with four cinephiles to talk about a decade of filmmaking. For this award, we're not trying to find the best from these years, as so many other awards do, but rather we're looking at the past for what has endured and changed movies the most of a decade. So far in the history of these Fresh Air Awards, we have awarded three movies in all of film history. For the 2010s, we gave the first edition of the award to the experimental documentary The Act of Killing by Joshua Oppenheimer. In the 1900s, we awarded the animation Phantasmagorie by Emile Cole. In the 1910s, the documentary South by explorer Frank Hurley pulled in a win. This year, we'll be looking at likely the most taught decade in film history, the 1920s. This podcast is called Feature in a Short. Therefore, a feature and a short movie must be chosen from each of our contributing cinephiles lists. A feature is defined by the Academy Motion Picture Arts and Sciences as any movie over 40 minutes, and a short is any movie under 40 minutes. But other than that, if the piece contains moving images and came out in the decade, it is allowed to be considered for this award. So before we get to discussing our nominees, it's important to understand what was going on before and during 1920s in movie making. What affected the now established business of producing and distributing films? So World War I had freshly ended, leaving the United States to continue to climb to dominate the international motion picture industry. Theaters, which from small Nickelodeons to larger, more flamboyant movie theaters. In the 1920s, it was an incredible decade of change, not just in cinema, but in art in general. Modernist thinking had touched almost all art forms, and motion pictures were no different. Movements in France were among the first, bringing Impressionism into filmmaking with great success. The cinematic techniques were revolutionized in post-production, with the ideas from Sergei Eisenstein of the Soviet Union and his invention of the montage. Animation saw rotoscoping help create more natural movements in the motion-drawn images. Color techniques had never been widely adapted previously since it required two films to be projected simultaneously. Technology came to the public in the form of feature-length film in 1922 with the use of a more precise two-tone Technicolor. This color used a more simpler single projection system. However, black and white film still dominated the industry for decades to come. Sound on film started in 1918 in Germany, but failed amidst hyperinflation. But sound was really popularized in America starting in 1923 from Lee DeForest as audio recorders, speakers, and amplifiers were being created as well. The dominant industry in the United States began the introduction of sound mid to late decade, which helped birth Disney and Warner Brothers to lead the industry for a century to come. The introduction to sound helped relieve local industries in other countries from Hollywood's dominance as language started to become a barrier for film viewers towards the end of the decade. The Academy Awards were developed in 1927 as well, which was really a way of the industry celebrating itself as a business and an art form. Other countries sought to use governments to subsidize the industry. Communism came on the rise during this time, and the power of film was used as propaganda while still being considered high art. 
Both of these seem to have culminated in a cinema-focused culture emerging from the Soviet Union. Vladimir Lenin claimed that cinema was the most important of all arts, and Mussolini also claimed that it was his strongest weapon. We not only love to experience the stories, but also to discuss and study it in the Fresh Air Award. So, let us break from the history lesson to the present and introduce our panelists here. Our first panelist, which all of you listeners know well, is Elizabeth Chatelaine, our very first guest. Elizabeth Chatelaine has directed a documentary and narrative shorts, including My Sister Sarah, which won the International Documentary Association's Award for Best Student Documentary. Her films have screened across the world, including at Interfilm Berlin, Uppsala, and South by Southwest. Her directorial feature debut, Love Sets Maneuver, is currently in development and participated in the Women in Film Sundance Financing Fellowship 2022. Beth, would you want to say hi to our listeners? Hi. (laughs) I don't know what else to say. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Our second panelist is uh, Kevin Hinman. Kevin is a Southern California writer and rapper who also happens to be a humongous cinephile. When he's not rapping or watching old movies with his wife and cat, Thomas... He's hard at work on his first mystery novel. Kevin, I love how you introduce your cat's name and not your wife's name. I know. I, I thought about that. My, my wife's name is Kara. She's wonderful. Okay. I'm, I'm glad to be back again this year. Thank you. Tracy Gossel is president and founder of Film Preservation Society, a nonprofit dedicated to restoring silent films. Their restorations to date include The Three Musketeers, Mr. Fix-It, Double Trouble, Too Many Kisses, and more than 100 Biograph Shorts. The Biograph Project is a 20-year project in which all 451 real films D.W. Griffith directed between 1908 and 1913 will be restored. In addition, she is the author of The First King of Hollywood, The Life of Douglas Fairbanks, and she lives in L.A. You want to say hi, Tracy? Hi, guys. I normally introduce myself as no one in particular. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Myself, you guys know me, but I'm an award-winning filmmaker, multilingual, multimedia storyteller, and founder of Four Wind Films and Catravant, and this podcast. My work has been acquired by major television networks such as HBO, and I've worked uh, as a creative lead on projects that have received awards at the Emmys, Tribeca Film Festival, and others. So, thank you for exploring this with me, you three lovely panelists. Before we actually get to the nominations... I know that uh, five films is not a lot, and I have a couple films that I just wanted to mention for our listeners. Our Body and Soul by Paul Robeson, which has a really great religious story and has a black lead for one of the first times in film history. And then also Blackmail by Alfred Hitchcock, which is one of the best first sound films and definitely the first incredible sound film coming out of Great Britain. Just came out a little later, so I didn't nominate it. And we got sound covered by some other nominations this year. So I want to preface before I even talk about the first film by saying there were so many phenomenally important artistic films from an artistic and beautiful graphic editing standpoint that picking one of those is simply a matter of taste. What I decided to do was to pick films that their technologic advances move the industry forward. So I'm looking for titles that represented an advancement in the technical aspect of films. The first film I picked was a film most people haven't heard of. It's called The Toll of the Sea. It was the first 
film that was filmed in two-strip Technicolor. Herbert Kalmus was only 33 years old when he founded the Technicolor Corporation, but at that point he already had a degree in physics and chemistry from MIT. He was unusually deft at business for a scientist, and he finally came up with a two-color process that didn't require special projection equipment like Kinemacolor did. You simply could put this film in any projector and the color would be seen. So the two-strip process didn't show blues, but it showed browns and greens and reds and pinks. Toll of the Sea is nominated by me because it was a proof of concept. We have color films today because of this. It's also an incredible story about an interracial marriage that you have seen in opera and other art forms, but you really don't see that a lot in film even today. But I just think that the screenplay, uh, in addition to the amazing technical color, made the film really unique and it was very easy and gentle to watch. I'm going to jump right in with The Gold Rush from 1925, directed by Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush is kind of like the 1920s version of Scarface, where a resourceful outsider sets off to find the American dream of wealth, only to lose his way under heaps of powder. And it's really, really funny. The first fully realized Chaplin comedy is The Gold Rush. He bombed at the box office trying to make a drama called The Woman of Paris. And I feel like that was an attempt for him to sort of prove that he was able to do things other than what he had been known for up until that time. The public reacted very mutedly to that film. So when he came out with The Gold Rush, it was a huge return to form. Not only does it include the iconic comedy bits, of the dinner roll dance, eating of the shoelaces, Chaplin in a chicken suit, but it also includes incredible subtle bits of physical comedy as well. There's a scene where Chaplin attempts to slyly slip Georgia's photo into his pocket without another tramp seeing him, which is really wonderful. He's like, I don't want to betray myself in front of this other vagabond. There are all these feelings that everything he's been doing up until now has been working towards this mixture of wonderful comedy and also pathos. Chaplin mixes the emotion with his humor to create a movie that is human in a way I feel like his contemporaries never even attempted. In this way, The Gold Rush can be regarded as like the first dramedy. You know, there's a lot of um, stuff of him pining for Georgia, her dismissing him, him getting his heart broken. And then there's a scene in New Year's where bar patrons sing Auld Lang Syne. And it's like a really moving moment in the film, especially when you think about the culture at the time mourning for its losses after World War I. The moment for everybody in the theater to think about the losses that they'd endured over the past decade. The Gold Rush remains the highest grossing silent comedy of all time. And critic Luke Sante called the film one of the first truly worldwide cultural phenomenon. This is due to the movie's sentimental heart and relatable underdog narrative. I guess it is just that patriotic feeling of pride and being at home um, because he's so relatable. Which is interesting because he's British, so. Yeah. I was just thinking of that scene specifically of when they're singing the olden Zion and just like his ability to use the tramp the tramp is like an outsider, is like someone who's on the fringes of society, and he can make us laugh with that. It's so poignant. You can feel his loneliness, like in that, you know, cutting back and forth between him and the cabin and the people in the big lodge all together celebrating. He's incredible. 
Yeah, I don't think of Old Lang Syne in terms of patriotism. I think of it in terms of memory and regrets. And the gold rush is just the apex of his creative genius. He just has that thing that brings everybody together. And a lot of times it is as a nation together. And just as uh, Kevin was saying, how did you phrase that? It was the first film to be a cultural phenomenon. Yes. And he was that. He just had that way to unify an audience. I'd like to go back to the fact, too, that it is also a special effects movie. Chaplin couldn't do the physical stunts that Keaton was doing or even Lloyd. And so, like, this movie is packed with a lot of interesting miniature work, interesting special effects. There's so much happening visually in the movie that makes it seem grandiose. He was in that chicken suit. They tried just putting a double in there. He said, I'll risk it. I'll I'll be in the chicken suit. Yeah, well, nobody could do a chicken quite like Chaplin. I did watch the documentary that was about him. And his perfectionism is something that I thought about throughout the entire film because I was like, I wonder how many times they did this so that the timing was exactly right. He was just a perfectionist. All right, let's move on to the next. Beth? So yeah, I guess having been an editor for a while, Battleship Potemkin is one that is sort of always on the list because of its the way that it pushed editing forward. It utilized what we now call montage editing in a way that really hadn't been used before. I guess a little bit about the background of Eisenstein is He was part of this school of filmmaking in Russia, and they took films that had already come out and would edit them into different versions and play with the editing. They were able to create this sort of new language of editing. The most iconic scene is the scene at the steps where the army is advancing and you've got this crowd of innocent people that are being trampled and there's the baby carriage that goes down the stairs and that's been referenced in so many films since then. There's a sense that time can be either made shorter or longer by the way that you are editing and then also this ability to evoke emotion through the way that things are being edited. Battleship Potemkin was the most well-known of all of his films. I think there's nothing that has changed editing and post-production more This is actually Eisenstein's second montage film. He released the other one, Strike, earlier in the year. But as you said, it wasn't nearly as famous. And I think it is because he's also using women and children when they're in peril. A lot of the storytelling in the second half of the film is mother's love for their family and mother's love for their child. They're putting themselves in danger for the cause of the revolution. And there's no doubt that this movie is propaganda. One of the reasons why Lenin wanted to use film so much and was such a proponent of the Soviet Union's film movement in general. And the visual style that he created, we wouldn't have the famous Rocky montages if we didn't have this. We wouldn't have MTV and the editing styles that we still see in music videos today or we don't even consider now when we're on our phones watching TikTok. It has rippled through cinematic history forever and it's something that we talk about in post-productions all the time. These were the beginnings, the baby What I feel like is the movie has the feeling of unstoppable movement. And -hmm. though even though it's not always as chaotic as it is in the Odessa step sequence, everything feels like a ball that's slowly getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it just like breaks against a wall. That's good editing. The last scene is powerful by itself, but it's much more powerful as a whole within the entire story. All right, let's move on. Uh, Kevin, let's have you do your second. I'm going to talk about 
Fritz Lang's 1924 film, Die Nibelungen, uh, part one, Siegfried. Nearly everyone who has even a passing knowledge of silent film has at least heard of Fritz Lang's 1927 sci-fi movie Metropolis. But three years before that, he made arguably a film that's even more astounding, Die Nibelungen. Split into two movies, the first film, called Siegfried, follows an 11th century swordman. He slays dragons. He steals gold. He achieves near immortality. And then he dies tragically. It's essentially the boilerplate for every fantasy film to come. And the special effects are some of the best of the entire decade. And in my opinion, would go unmatched until like King Kong. The dragon is this huge puppet and it required 17 men to operate it. I mean, it was really cool seeing a fantasy film like this and that they put the thought into the special effects the dragon really sets the magical qualities that everybody has for the rest of the film i don't think if you have a special effect like that you don't feel like the rest of the series is in this fantasy world you really need that in sci-fi and they took the time and the money to do that and you know fritz lang is the person to do it there's a sequence where the circle of the nibelungen uh, holding up a plate of jewels is later directly copied in the famous dance sequence of Metropolis. And so all the men are holding up a plate, and then they go from being statues to being actual men. All the elements of high fantasy are there. Sinbad movies that are to come, Conan, the Schwarzenegger one, even like the political machinations that take up the movie's back half anticipate something you would see in Game of Thrones. However, in the back half of the movie, like many films of the 1920s, the sexual politics become extremely dicey. Uh, the second part of the movie involves a rape that's handled really poorly. And it is in the original poem, which the movie is based on. It's sort of indicative of a larger issue in films of the 1920s, where you constantly have this dichotomy between women that are like these wonderful girl next door virgin types or these horrible theta bear of vamps and Madonna that like, or the whore exactly and i feel like this is like so prominent in every 1920s film i saw viewing it from a modern lens brunhild who is the woman of the second half the queen of iceland she's like super amazing and badass though in this movie she's supposed to be this horribly manipulative villain during the movie my wife and i kept wondering be like oh are we supposed to like this person or not like because we, we love her she's amazing but i think we're supposed to think she's like some horrible treacherous vamp character in my opinion the second half of the movie doesn't work quite as well as the first but the first half like the first hour and a half are so strong I just want to jump off of Margaret Schoen's acting as well. The way she acted in the second film is also very queenly, I guess to say it simply, where she moves incredibly slowly. She barely says anything. She does everything with a look. And all of her emotions mean a lot. Where she's nothing like that in the first half of the film. Well, what's interesting also is when we look at the films of the German Expressionism era and these Fritz Lang films... These were not big international successes, but what they did was they influenced the American filmmakers. So we see dragons and fantasy elements, and more people in the world saw Doug Fairbanks in The Thief of Baghdad, where he's drawing directly from the work of these Germans. We have to look at these films as the source of inspiration for than Hollywood, who either improved or perfected the technical aspects because they had more resources, or watered down 
the sexuality or the elements that the Europeans were providing. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, and there are a lot of parallels, I feel like, especially in specific effects that were used in Metropolis were earlier used in Nibelungen. World building, too, is just like a, such an incredible component of this film and of Metropolis. Let's move on to the next one. Tracy, do you want to give your second pick? Sure. I am back to technical advances. We all know that in the 1920s, we had what I feel to be a tragic event, which was the arrival of sound. And everybody tends to think in shorthand that sound came with the jazz singer, but sound had been coming before and lots and lots of technical processes were tried. Edison, you can find in the aughts, is putting sound on disc, recording records, and then recording film at the same time. And so you can go to the Library of Congress and hear people singing and talking in Edison films 20 years before. But it was the Warner Brothers who really worked to get sound in a usable process, and they came up with the Vitaphone process. So all of the kinetophones and camera phones and chronophones and synchroscopes and everything that were invented but didn't really functionally work, the Warner Brothers Vitaphone process did work. And you will see in all of the early 1930s Warner's first national films, they'll have that little flag and they'll say, the Vitaphone process. And this was premiered not with the jazz singer, but the year before with Don Juan, which was a John Barrymore major epic film that had with it an orchestral soundtrack and some sound effects, the clinking of swords, etc., during fights. And Warner's held a large premiere in New York where they had a series of Vitaphone shorts, which were essentially vaudeville acts, where you would hear somebody playing the violin with their feet. That event with those Vitaphone shorts and then the feature of Don Juan is what told the industry that sound was coming and that they had a process and that it worked. In 1926, people like Fairbanks and Pickford and Louis B. Mayer at Studio Heads saw that going forward, you would not need to have a live orchestra playing for a roadshow film that you could send a film out with the score that you wanted to go with it. Attached, sound was here, and it was probably coming to stay. And the film that got them there was Don Juan. As you said, it paid off huge because they're top five player in the film industry a hundred years later and you'll see another company really emerge with the coming of sound. There's no doubt that this technology boosted Warner Brothers and put them in the front. And it's amazing how much the sound effects of the movie add to the immersiveness of the action during the sword fight scenes. Just hearing the noise of the sword fighting really makes the scene pop in a way that they don't in other silent era films. All right, cool. Beth, you want to move on to your second nomination? I guess next on my list was Man with a Movie Camera. And well, Justin and I both work in documentary film. And so this film to me had so many 
aspects of it that were influential, that were breaking rules, that were pushing things, very self-reflexive. There's so much being said in this film. Yes, very meta. And I was reading that it was created over three years, but it has the capsule of, you know, this one day. One of my favorite scenes is when the film strip slows down and then we go into the editing room and see the woman who's the editor. And it's cross cut at the same time with With other things that's going on in the city, which I think is also incredible. It's using interesting connotations. And then also his interest in sort of the everyday life of people. and, And I mean, it really was very revolutionary. Do you see a linear connection between it and early 70s PBS and then all of today's reality television. We're watching the Kardashians or we're watching Housewives of Beverly Hills, etc. Can we go back and blame or credit something like Man with a Movie Camera for that? Or is that just too big a leap? I don't see that quite as much. It's not like the first documentary and there's no talking in it. Yeah, and I guess maybe the one thing is the self-reflexivity, which like I Mm -hmm. think today is such a common and proliferate thing. Everybody has a camera. Everybody is documenting themselves. Yeah, like documenting yourself. So you are talking Mm -hmm. to the camera. Your audience is who you're talking to, you know? I do find that maybe there's something of that because he shoots himself in a sense. You could kind of make that connection. Actually, with that, since it's a good transition, Tracy, do you want to talk about Nanak? Another film that I'm not particularly crazy about, but was incredibly influential because it was the first feature documentary to achieve commercial success. And that's what counts in the industry. If something doesn't turn a profit, it's probably not going to be adopted by others. So Nanook was groundbreaking at the time. It caught a lot of authentic details of a culture that most people in the world didn't really know. Because Nanook succeeded, I think every feature documentary that makes it to a movie theater today owes a debt to that film. I think you see the power of film also with this film and along with Battleship Potemkin. PBS documentaries wouldn't be made if, if this wasn't commercially successful either. Not just ones that hit the theater, but even ones that just reached the television set that are made for small groups. We still talk about this film because it had such an effect on audiences. We talk about what we are responsible to when making a documentary. No matter what anybody thinks about the content, I think that's the most important thing that you get from it is that story is what sells films and that includes in documentaries. It did have a narrative. For documentary, it definitely influenced documentaries to come. Let's move on. I'm surprised I was the only one to pick this one as well. It is, I think, the most influential film in silent films in general. And that is Nosferatu because it launched horror films internationally and in the 1920s and in the 1930s, the horror film became way, way more popular. It is the basis for all film vampires forevermore into the future. It is hauntingly beautiful. It is everything that you want from a horror story. I think the expressionism is visually stunning the way that they use shadows in this film, especially to create the grandeur of darkness. I don't think that there's any film that is so enduring in such a specific way. And sadly, this film was a ripoff of the novel. They never got the rights to the story. And that is why 
It is called Nosferatu. We have Count Orlok instead of Count Dracula. But that didn't stop this movie because it was so well told and so amazingly visual. This film still lived on, even though it was made illegally. What's interesting is that none of the subsequent Dracula films ever do go back to the book. Maybe you can argue Coppola's, but every subsequent Dracula uses Nosferatu as its basic template. The book is very hard to adapt because it's an epistolary novel. And so everything basically uses the structure of Nosferatu. Let's roll right into the next Murnau with Sunrise. Sunrise is a little bit later, 1927. It's a movie with a really simple plot, but it's not a simple movie. It's a drama about a man so tempted by a vampish city girl that he decides to drown his country wife on their boat ride to the city. He chickens out, and after a naturally terrified Janet Gaynor, who plays the wife, they just enjoy a night in the big city. The shift from horror to romance is absolutely tonally bizarre. It's almost as if two completely (laughs) different movies were stitched together. Murnau brings out during this sequence... All of the vibrant experimental core of expressionism in these city scenes, like a mini city symphony movie inside Mm -hmm. of it. You know, you have all these wild dissolves and things like that. They're incredible dollies. One in which the couple crosses a busy street is especially masterful. Then like the entire movie comes together. And it's taking you on this huge wild ride. And it has such a schizophrenic nature. There's these opposing romances. There's the dichotomy of like city and country living, old fashionedness and modernity. It's like this single celled organism that keeps like rapidly splitting and rejoining itself with no really loss of identity or structure. The, the movie with this much style is a drama and not like a more broadly stroke genre film. Signifies Murnau's ability to link style across genre barriers. Something I feel like none of the early auteurs were able to accomplish like to me it's almost like a musical without sound where they can just totally change and forget about whatever was happening and break into song or break into a city escape or break into romance after we had horror you know i remember distinctly watching this in my film history class the dolly shot that goes through the forest It was so exciting to like see the camera moving in that way. To me, that was very influential. The other thing about this film is really the epitome of the beginning of Hollywood poaching a lot of other countries' filmmakers and bringing them to the U.S. You have not just Murnau, but also the writer Karl Mayer from the German Expressionist movement. And they're bringing more and more talent with the money that they have to increase their power in Hollywood. It culminated into a thing that actually won them one of the first Academy Awards and the second top prize for the best unique artist picture of that year. Well, Wings was the only silent to win best picture. They had two categories that year. One was best unique and artist artistic picture. And then they had... It was Best called picture. Outstanding Picture, I think, for okay. the one Wings won. And okay. the Academy as such the since said that uh, Wings definitely was equivalent to, uh, according Best to picture. them, to Best Picture. But they had two similar huh. prizes awarded that year. Well, Janet Gaynor certainly won for multiple performances, one of which was Sunrise. One was Seventh Heaven. When they awarded the Best Actress, it wasn't for a certain role in a certain film. It was for your work that year. Sunrise was named as one of the reasons she won. 
I guess that makes sense. They eventually promoted a single. The studios probably wanted to attach it to a film, the award, yeah. so they could sell it better in the future. Oh, you know? that makes that's absolute just sense. An yeah. work throughout the year. Who cares about the right? The actual the other person. People? We got the studios in there for the big bucks, you know. Got to commodify it in some way. Okay, you don't make money, you can't make the films. You know, that's right. so somebody's got to pay for the gaffers and. Yeah, it's very true. Okay, so let's see who's next. Beth. The cabinet of Dr. Caligari. The expressionist movement came into play into, in this film in a big way. And I feel like it's influenced horror films, it's influenced noir, the way that they utilized the sets and in this very expressionist way with these sharp angles. It had a huge influence on the films that came after it, especially horror. That's one reason why I chose this as well, because this decade, it's exactly what Beth said. The confluence of the art world there were such strong movements that went not only through paintings for several decades and it made its way to film in the 20s you have all of these different kinds of art forms surrealism impressionism expressionism that is the most important thing that happened in the 20s people are still experimenting stylistically all the time and i think the cabinet of dr caligari really kicked this movement off in film more than anything so um, to you and, it was like the new descending a staircase of film yeah when it hit cinema it felt like it was a culmination of all art forms doing it together absolutely and when we're talking about twists like this too you're talking about breaking the suture of the film by saying we had this implicit pact that everything i was showing you is real and you're in this movie with me and all of a sudden it's not it ties in with some of the other metatextual stuff we were talking about with some of the other directors where you're saying, oh, film is a subjective medium. It makes the audience aware of the technique of filmmaking by including a turn that is so prominent. All right. Tracy, let's move on to your fourth pick. The film I decided to pick in the short film category was The Playhouse. Buster Keaton's 1921 film takes the technical camera work of split screens that had already been created before the 20s. They would mat off an area, crank the film, then back it up, mat off the other areas. It took split screen and split it in the instance of the minstrel show into nine separate segments. It's nine separate Buster Keatons who all have to dance to the same tune, all moving in unison. Yeah. And it was all done in the camera. And... It had to be done on the same strip of film. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. there was one glitch, and you can imagine by the time you filmed eight of the nine busters dancing <laughs> you realize how hard these people work and how hard the technicians worked it's just brilliant one of the things that i learned about is the reason it so heavily relies on sight effects is that keaton had injured his ankle which is why there's not many stunts in it at all and he had to kind mm -hmm. of think of another way to wow the audience yeah. With that, Kevin, you want to move on? But let me talk about John Grierson's Drifters. It's a very simple movie about a herring fishing boat trip 
manages to find like a really beautiful sweet spot where technique seems to enhance our notion of reality. A lot of the movies up until this time, uh, especially in the back half of the 20s, use a lot of really like jarring, abrasive editing. But Grierson opts for a sort of hypnotic editing rhythm that really makes you feel like you are at sea with these fishermen. And there are a lot of like slow dissolves between shots that imitate the sort of lugubrious lapping of waves. And the camera is a lot more subtle in this movie. And and there are times when it's allowed simply to be with the men. It reminds me a lot of the proto-cinema verite style. Where you're just like, oh, here we are existing in this scene. We're just going to show you these men reeling in these nets for a while. Uh, It has a sort of like blend of grace and poetry that like really wouldn't pop up again in documentaries um, until like post-World War II. Yeah, you see so many angles of the boat and all the different angles say how many things are going on on that boat i found myself coming up with commentary in my head that was just like i really like this movie which is like not the same thing as it being influential tracy let's have you do your steamboat willie which of course is in one sense a tip of the hat to steamboat bill jr but it's the mickey mouse film that was the first time a cartoon was designed for sound And there had been Mickey Mouse films made before, Ab Iwerks and uh, Walt Disney. But when Walt had Ab Iwerks craft a cartoon specifically for sound, Iwerks delivered a symphony. He turned nearly everything in it into an instrument. The three whistles atop the steamship send out musical notes along with their little puffs of steam. Mickey turns farm animals and kitchenware on the ship into instruments gags that would not have existed in a silent film unless you were absolutely controlling the score. I think it is important and ultimately is influential. They had trouble matching the orchestra to the animated cartoon's actions, and so they had to do it with overlaying a bouncing ball on the film strip. Technically, that's not an easy thing to do. And yet they figured out how to do it. It's interesting, unlike Windsor McKay's template that he was sort of revising, which was to make animation seem more like real life. This movie is a world that only could exist in animation. It's nothing like real life. All the characters are these weird shapes and sizes. And it's sort of this beautiful thing that we come to associate with Disney and animation of, you know, weird sounds sort of a lovely little thing i was watching this with my mom i was like mom do you notice how like some of the animals act like animals and some of the animals act like humans (laughs) pluto and goofy are both dogs but Mm -hmm. pluto doesn't talk exactly yeah he does i never thought about that (laughs) let's move on to ancien dandalou is Mm -hmm. the most realist film that was made at the time to accompany part of this modernist movement Luis Buñuel, who is known for a lot of his other surrealist works, and all his other works are surreal, but nothing compares to this particular film that he collaborated with Dali. So this is the one that they came up together, and they didn't want to have anything that was related to each other from scene to scene that could be rationally explained, but nonetheless, it feels like a narrative, and it has the representation of a dream. I feel like all dream sequences have been influenced by this film. I think there's no film that makes you think more about these juxtapositions 
of different ideas next to each other because it's so blatant than this film. It's like the first movie designed to make you feel unpleasant. It's interesting. Bunuel has stated like the antagonistic element of the movie is actually a reply to the popularized aesthetics of movies like those city symphony films we were talking about. Maybe not Man with a Movie Camera, but some of the earlier ones like Manhattan and stuff like that. Just like visual splendor movies. And he kind of wanted to dig into the opposite of that. All right. Well, with that, we have all of our films that are nominated, many multiple nominations, and now it's time to vote. So we'll be right back with one film from each guest. We'll move on to the final round as each of us will be voting on each other's nominations. Please enjoy this snippet of Magnum Opus's latest piece of music. Magnum Opus is a hip-hop group. I'm one member. The other member is musician Arison Kane. We both live in Southern California. 90s New York-style hip-hop. And if you like this piece... You can find their music at grownupsaretalking.bandcamp.com. Get it. We're about to rejoin forces It's the new world order We're hip-hop and we're both gorgeous We corner shit and when the distorted organ hits It's like a four-course meal inside an orphanage Of course they'll be begging for extra portions Fortune favors all sorts of flavors So stick a fork in it We can't afford to be bored So we'll forge forward with a four-course snack That'll rattle the floorboards The boys are back The boys are back Tell all your friends that the boys are back M-A-G M-O-P-U-S back again The boys are back, the boys are back Tell all your friends that the boys are back M-A-G-N-U-M-O-P-U-S back again I got a problem and that problem is atomic I'll probably put a collar with a bomb that better bounce upon a dodge his magnum oh my fucking god can talk to grown-ups who are grown up out of pods i take an issue with valuing individualism over a statistic that's considered by physicians these ostriches don't pop their head up till the pop goes off so i'll be on this poppy popping off until my tonsils rock the boys are back the boys are back tell all your friends that the boys are back m-a-g-n-u-m-o-p-u-s back again here we are back. I hope you guys enjoyed the tune. Feel free also to write Kevin directly if you have questions about his music and let you know all of our nominations. We'll start out with my nomination. The movie that will move on to the final round is Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera with almost unanimous first place votes. Kevin's movie that will move on to the final round is Sunrise, a Song of Two Humans. And then Tracy's movie that's going to move on to the final round is Steamboat Willie. The first. (laughs) And finally, for best film that pushed cinema forward the most, as an editor, it's fitting that her nomination of Battleship Potemkin moves on to the final round. So with these four, we're going to take another quick break and we're going to vote. In the next round, we will all vote from these final four films, and we will come up with a first place winner who will receive the Fresh Air Award. (laughs) 
Pitcher on the mound, Casey at the plate. Catcher in the rise, teeth are grinding from the aftertaste. Grizzled vet sweating as he gradually grabs the bat. Curveball coming and he winds up for the aftermath. Hypertension pulls climbing to a faster pace. Sliding into second, but they branded him a basket case. Pragmatic is Brad Maddox, he's back at it. Dropping six ciphers and baggage like bad habits. Dag Nabbit, I'm Bass Ackwards. Jesse Spano with Zach attacking her fat burners. Black Magic, Flux Capacitors. Tony Randa with Tony Soprano's Mass Murders. Fourth place, the animation of Steamboat Willie. Poor Mickey Mouse. We will not have an animation that wins an X Fresh Air Award this year. In third place is Battleship Potemkin. Okay, so what you guys voted for the last thing, let me look at it. Whoa, actually, my goodness, it's a tie. We're going to overtime. It's going to be between Man with a Movie Camera and Sunrise. It's interesting to me that both of these movies resemble very little the popular movies of today. They're both very particular types of films. They advance cinema in very specific ways. Man with a Movie Camera is so incredible. It utilizes all film techniques to make something that is purely cinema. While Sunrise is points a direction to the future of an auteurist type of cinema, one that's visionary, complex, personal, and divisive, maybe more than any other films of the 20s. I wish I were that articulate. If you were to ask an audience of a thousand people which film touched them the more, I think it would be Sunrise. But because they're apples and oranges and each sort of the best of its own category within the arena of advancing film, you should do a double award. But you should give Sunrise the lesser award that it got at the first Academy. You know, it's its own. <laughs> Beth, do you have an argument either way? I don't know. They're both really incredible films because Man with the Movie Camera, advanced documentary film and influenced documentaries to come. But with Sunrise, it was basically the height of filmmaking up to that point. It's like they're in these two different arenas. Both of these films are incredibly influential to me. Sunrise seems more like the Hollywood system that's coming in the following decades as a stylized way to create uh, palatable films for wide audiences. And it's more modernist, but I'll have to go with Man with a Movie Camera as my vote. It exemplifies the 1920s culmination of all these different kinds of styles in one film that adds its own little flair. You guys? I'm Sunrise. I'm Man with a Movie Camera. For me, it's the Man with a Movie Camera. It announces itself as a masterpiece, I think, within like the first seven minutes and continues to top itself through the entire runtime. It's an incredible work of cinema. Then that's it. We have a winner. Ziga Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera, a Russian film, our third documentary feature that has won the Fresh Air Award in overtime. I can't wait to jump into next year and go into the 1930s when there is the first full decade of sound in cinema. Let us know what you think of our nominations. What do we miss out on? What do we get right? We'd love to hear from you. There are open ad spaces on Feature in a Short. If you would like to know more, please write us at info at fourwindfilms.com. We'll respond right back to you. And with that, any announcements? What's coming up? Kevin? Yeah, I'd just like to take a moment to plug my rap group. 
magnum opus. More stuff can be found at grownupsaretalking.bandcamp.com. You can also listen to the album Grown Ups Are Talking and the single M-O-M-F-G on Spotify, iTunes, anywhere you can stream music. You can also listen to my solo album at www.specialtodeath.com. If you go to www.filmpreservationsociety.org, you will find clips from films we've restored, our wonderful shop where you can buy Blu-rays of our restorations or autographed books. Support silent film restoration. Every penny that is donated goes directly to paying for either laboratory costs or the technicians who do the digital work. We pay no administrative salaries. Everybody else volunteers. It's the only charity or nonprofit I know where 100% of your donation goes directly to the very cause that we're asking you to support. And you get a letter for Uncle Sam for your taxes. Beth? What I'm working on right now is a feature-length narrative film called Love Sets Maneuver, which is semi-autobiographical. Basically, it's about a woman in her 50s with adult children, and one of them has a drug abuse problem, and her codependent relationship with her daughter, and how she sort of unravels over the course of one night. And we see how much her codependency affects the rest of the family. And of course, our panelists are doing amazing things. Thank you to Tracy Gossel, Elizabeth Chatelaine, and Kevin Hinman, sharing their time and their knowledge with Feature in a Short. This is our last episode of season six. In the forecast to look forward to, please check out the movie that we just locked yesterday called Borders, Besties, and Barks. Directed by Inga Moran. Written and produced by Ibarra de Sola Habsburg and Susan Dean. March 31st, we will also be releasing our short film prologue solely on our website so it's the only place they can look for it multiple award winning short film theme song for the season was getting it done by kevin mcleod which is free for release on the internet so go check it out thank you to our sound mixer hans bilger billy joel layton edited together this episode ricky rosario was the sound recordist for tracy gossel kevin hinman provided us with the two tracks from magnum opus Thank you also to everybody who's helped out this season, including Isabella Restrepo, who's helped us with our live event marketing. Laura Davi, who helped us with events all year. I'm signing off to season six of A Feature in a Short. Talk at you soon for season seven with a new theme song. Peace. <laughs>